0: I'm not tied to one billing model if they want to do a fixed fee style staged approach if they're happy to run on the hourly rate approach depending on the matter if a client's like all right well I want to do the fixed fee approach but can I pay you in installments over you know a 6 week period I'm happy to work with them and sort of whatever works because at the end of the day, they're paying for a service and it's not a cheap service. They should be able to at least dictate to a large extent how they interact with that service. And I guess that's really where I try to build that flexibility in. Now, for me, the you know the standard, standardized billable unit sort of thing, or I would do that for a fixed fee matter anyway, just so I can contribute it. So I still keep within that sort of like monitoring of my time and the data that goes along with that. But at the end of the day, I'm not sitting there watching, well, how much is this going to cost? In terms of the profit I can make, it's more about well, what is the cost going to be to the client, and are they happy to spend that?
1: You're listening to Doing Law Differently. Join me, Lucy Dickens, as I explore how the world's most progressive legal service providers are doing law differently. Hi everyone, Lucy Dickens here. Welcome back to the Doing Law Differently podcast. One of the themes that I absolutely love that is starting to show through in the guests that I'm speaking to on the podcast is this understanding of clients and a people or human centric focus towards the practice of law. And that theme well and truly shines through in today's interview with Dougald Hamilton. He's the founder and principal of 2-3 Legal. 2-3 Legal are a boutique firm who offer traditional dispute resolution, restructuring, insolvency, and commercial legal services, but they do that with a modern world approach. As you'll hear in today's interview, 2-3 Legal have really designed their services around the expectation that clients will demand better value, more flexibility, and really good service as well. Because of this, 2-3 Legal take a really flexible approach to their litigation practice with a real focus on commercial outcomes and what it is that their clients want to achieve, not just on court processes or the traditional way of practicing law. Of course, I unpack all of that with Dugald, but we also have a really interesting conversation about technology towards the end, and particularly in relation to cybersecurity and Dugald's predictions for the future there. So enjoy the interview. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Not a problem. We had a little bit of a chat as uh, just before we hit record, and that's got me fired up and excited to dive in and talk to you about some of these topics, and I've even added a few more to my list. So there you go. Let's get into it. I want to start with asking you, and this isn't a question I normally start with, but I want to start with it for you, which is getting a bit of the background. Before uh, we started recording today, I was listening to your interview, which is a year or so old now, maybe even a little bit more, uh, with my friend Clarissa Raywood on the Happy Lawyer, Happy Life podcast. And one of the bits that really stood out for me in that interview is that you said, and I'll link it in the show notes, you said you were fed up of seeing the world and your clients and yourself as dollar signs. And I got the impression that that was a big driver for you in setting up your own firm. And I'm just interested to explore that.
0: Yeah, sure. I think, I mean, especially in litigation, all we do is fight about money. So that's sort of where your career lives. It's in the financial world. And you end up getting into a real habit of viewing the whole world through those, and they're not rose-colored glasses; they're green-colored glasses because of the color of, <laughs> you know, I guess, just, just what we call money. Even even though we run with Monopoly money here in Australia, but the, and then because of that, you sort of start to view everything as quite a well. It's a five-minute unit, mm. and that's a you know x amount of dollars per hour, and then you've got an x amount of dollar billable target. So your entire day and life gets driven by well, how much money does is the client chasing and you're chasing that money, but then it's also on your career side. It's, well, how much do I need to build today and then how much do I need to build per month? And then every minute of every day gets tracked and accounted for and then you've got, well, what's my metric? Is it seven hours a day? And then if I hit nine hours a day, does that mean I get a bonus? Does it not? And everything just becomes this world of money and it becomes very cold and disheartening and you sort of forget that, the person on the other end of the phone or the emails or sitting across the table from you is actually a human being. And they have a lot of other stresses in their life. And the fact that they're dealing with this one financial stress doesn't mean they're actually just only concerned about money. So that really started to grind on me, particularly because I'm a people person in general and I I love to sort of talk to people and hang out with people in in the real world and sort of starting to see everything as money sort of made me quite an unhappy person, Um, which sort of led me down this journey to find, well, what does happiness look like for me both? personally but then also within the law and it took probably three years to get to that stage where I figured out exactly what that was and where it sort of came from and where I wanted to sort of take it from there. So,
1: A lot of people start their career in law with that real interest in helping people. I've interview. i probably interviewed hundreds of law graduates and they all tell me, I say, why do you want to be a lawyer? Why do you want a career in law? Because I really want to help people. It's always the answer. But it's interesting how quickly when they're put into a system of traditional law, the focus does change from helping people to money, exactly like you just described. And it's not necessarily the intention, but it's something that we have to be intentional about when we want to try and get ourselves out
0: of that. Exactly. And I think I mean all businesses need to make money and I'm not railing against the legal profession making money. I mean we carry so much risk and that's why we're such an expensive thing people to set of people to use. I mean the amount of risk a general law firm takes on by taking on one client is is quite significant from their own financial perspective which is why we sort of end up in this situation where we're perceived to be very expensive mm. although my actual viewpoint is good legal advice is really really cheap but the difficulty is because we don't see clients and I'm seeing clients less and less these days because they're so busy themselves that they're just like here's a problem I'm just going to email you and I never want to see you face to face you become disconnected from the world and you live in this Four-cornered office bubble. um, Whether or not you've got a view to the outside world or not, you may not even have sunshine in your life for a few months a year, depending on where you work. Um, You just become so disconnected, and it's trying to work out how to reconnect that when you don't get that direct sort of contact, and that's a really hard thing to sort of get. And it's and it's not something I've perfected by (laughs) any means, and it's something that I still struggle with, um, sort of daily, trying to work out. Well, how do I get my fill of people and stay connected to what my clients are experiencing, but also to keep myself happy.
1: It's interesting that you talk about that point. It's something that we've been thinking about a lot in our firm. We've just uh, set up, we have three KPIs for our staff for the year. Um, One's financial, one's to do with uh, their knowledge, increasing their knowledge. And the third one that we chose this year was client relationships. And it's exactly what you're talking about. And we're not saying client relationships in the sense of cross-selling or upselling. It is simply sitting down and talking to your customer and just getting to know them as a person you know instead of where we would often tend to rush through a meeting because we need to get on to the next thing that we need to do or you know we just need to sign this document so once we've done that you know off you go it's actually spending the time to get to know them as people and trying to really bring it back but it's interesting how we have to be intentional about it how that's been lost
0: well, and I think it's partly, and and a lot of this comes to having honest discussions with your clients about money and saying to them, look, I'm not actually going to bill you for this discussion. I just want to know about you. And so they feel comfortable in that, A, they're not wasting your time, and B, they're not getting charged for the half hour, 45 minutes, one hour. You're there actually having a coffee with them or having a discussion and getting to know them. But once you know them, you're so much easier able to deliver better service to them because you know what their actual goals are. And I sort of make a point of it at every matter whenever I start is sort of say to a client, well, this is the problem, sure, but what do you want to achieve at the end of it and where do you want to see yourself if this problem didn't exist? And a lot of the times the answer to that helps you frame how you handle their dispute from a um, – but, I mean, it can work in any context, commercial context, how you handle their matter to work within their goals and the law doesn't fit always easily with what the client wants but having that knowledge and being able to sort of always go back to well actually the client wants to achieve this is what I'm about to propose to them or is what they've asked me to do going to achieve that for them and that actually helps as well with the legal spend side of things because it helps you prevent going down dry gullies or sort of taking on work from them which they don't actually need done. Which is hard for lawyers to say no to work, but I think it's sort of one of the good things about running a newer age law firm is it gives me the flexibility to say, "Look, I actually don't think you need to do that, and this is why
1: mm, but how refreshing is that whenever I take that approach with my clients, I kind of get the ah, oh, I'm really glad that you you know you told me that and I expected that you would just tell me to you know take this to court or whatever it might be so let's unpack this a bit more because what you're talking about is I would describe as an outcomes focus. You're not interested in necessarily following the traditional path that litigation might take, but instead you're starting the conversation with what is it that you want to achieve. Talk to me more about this. How is your approach different to the traditional approach for dispute resolution?
0: I mean, I think with all disputes, you are locked into some form of structure. I mean, we've got rules in Queensland and there's rules all over Australia, which is this is how a dispute should run. But with a lot of matters, you can run them completely differently everything i do is relatively bespoke unless you're in the basic debt recovery you know just churn and burn get the claims out and get judgments and enforce them but when you're doing a lot of the variety in the in the litigation world every matter sort of requires a unique approach and having those upfront discussions allows you to work out where to spend the money and where not to spend money and i think that's probably from a A, a legal spend, but stopping to think about, well, I don't want to see this client as just a cash cow and see them as a dollar sign. What I want to see them is what their result-based solution is and then work out with them, okay, well, what's your budget and then how do we then use that budget to get the best result? Now, sometimes it might be, well, look, we really need to spend a lot of money on your expert evidence because this is an entirely expert-driven case. So what we're not going to do is prepare witness statements and we're not going to prepare all all of this. We're just going to go really sort of light on those sort of other matters where you would would in other cases you might be really heavily on your witness statements because it's all oral evidence and you need to get that story down pat straight away. So identifying those big spend areas early on and saying the client well this is what's going to cost in these areas, but we can go really sort of light on these other areas even though you might still need to do bits and pieces. That thing I guess gives them the flexibility to go, okay, great, now I know where we're going to spend and why we're going to spend that. The other part of it is, and it's something that is a really hard sell to clients, but I think it's probably the most essential part is doing a game plan advice in the beginning and sitting down with either a junior barrister or just with me, depending on what the size of the matter is and going, here's the problem we've got. Here's what we think the answer is going to be and why. And these are all the risks that go along with that. And this is how we keep on track. Because I sort of say to clients, I can control one thing. I control we what we do and everything else is out of my control. I can't control what the courts do and I can't control what the other lawyers or the other people on the other side do. But once we've got that game plan and advice Or a game plan in place that prevents us from getting distracted easily from the other side when they start throwing curveballs at you and you're like well hang on a sec is this actually an issue if we've considered as much of the issues as possible in the beginning you can then sort of say to the client it's not an issue don't spend the money fighting it let's just agree to it or let's just try to get a really quick result on that one part and keep focused on where we want to spend your money because it's it's their money and at the end of the day no one gets 100% of their costs back in any any litigation fight. So the, the legal spend itself is such a sort of, you know, knife's edge approach to it. You've got to work really closely with the client and their budget and be very honest about and upfront about costs and when costs change, re-explaining, well, actually it's more expensive because you've asked me to do my work or the other side has done this and that sort of requires our response that way. I think it's really interesting
1: that you start the engagement by saying this is what I can control and everything else is out of my control because whether we like it or not, and we, we probably don't, that's often hard for clients to get their heads around. You know, they, as soon as they give you their problem, it's your problem now. And a, a lot of the time they expect you to just get have, have complete control and sort it all out. But I like that you're up front in, I guess, making it clear that, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I can't work miracles and this is the strategy, but
0: there's only so much that's within my control. Exactly. And I think that comes down to being honest with your clients and being upfront about, and I think we can fall into a trap as lawyers, as taking on a matter that looks really good and saying, well, look, the first step's going to cost you two and a half grand and I'll tell you about the costs a bit later on. And then you might be 15 or 20 grand and you're like, oh, I have actually told the client what's this going to cost. Mm-hmm. And then you get the stress about, oh, is the client going to pay my bills or mm-hmm. all that side of thing. So I think that upfront approach is I think my clients really like it. Um, I haven't had any complaints about it. But it also (laughs) allows you to sort of say to them, well, look, it's a very risky thing we're about to embark on. I mean, no litigation is 100%. Even the strongest case in the world, we might only say you've got a 75% chance because Because 25% of the... (laughs) Well, that and you just it's unpredictable. What a judge may view I mean, they've got their own view of the world and they come with their own inherent sort of expectations and biases. Mm. The one thing I and you mentioned it here and it's sort of I guess partly where my name and my law firm came from, I like the approach from clients, Well, here's my problem, you just deal with it. For me, I very much think that the collaboration approach is the only way we can really do law. I mean, If a client just says, here's the problem, you fix it, you're not going to get them a good result and it's not going to be a cheap result for them. Working with your clients and saying, look, I can do all these things but actually there's these seven things you can do which will save me a hell of a lot of time and save you a hell of a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Now a lot of clients might go, well, I'm too busy for that, I still want you to do it. But it's that working as a team rather than sort of you're the uh, expert sitting up in your ivory tower and people just dump paperwork on your desk and you do it and then you issue the bills sort of thing, Yeah, trying to work with clients is sort of the goal. that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's that spectrum. It's the, from the DIY legal services, you know, the download your document online or whatever it might be, or even self-represented to the full spectrum. And you're saying that you're going to sit somewhere on that spectrum, depending on the matter and depending on how involved your client wants to be in the complexity. And you're not going to plant yourself in any one place and say, this is what I do. And, take it or leave it. You're flexible. And I guess, I mean, I've, I'd read you talking about offering flexibility with your clients and I didn't quite understand what that meant, but perhaps that's it.
0: Um, It's partly it. I mean, definitely being dynamic and flexible, I'm happy to work with it, however a client wants. I've had yeah. some clients say to me, look, I'm really happy to run this matter myself. But what I really want you to do is just look at it and give me some sort of on-the-spot advice about whether those issues are right, whether I've missed anything, whether there's anything inherently wrong. And when I do that, I sort of carve out a lot of the risk and say, well, look, I'm not giving you advice on these issues, but what I'm doing is this and this. And so they understand what they're paying for and what they're getting. But then also I've got other clients who do just like, I want the full suite. I want the full service. I want you to sort of run it. The other part is I'm not tied to one billing model. I'm more than happy to work with how the clients want to do that. If Mm. they want to do a fixed fee style staged approach, if they're Mm. happy to run on the hourly rate approach, depending on the matter, I'm really Mm. happy to work in with, what suits the clients generally, you know, if a client's like, All right, well, I wanna do the fixed fee approach, but can I pay you in instalments over, you know, a six week period, I'm happy to work with them sort of whatever works. Because at the end of the day, they're paying for a service and it's not a cheap service. So they they should be able to at least dictate to a large extent how they interact with that service. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess that's really where I try to build that flexibility in. Now, for me, the you know the standard standardized billable units sort of thing, or I, oh, I guess I use real-time recording. I would do that for a fixed fee matter anyway, just so I can contribute it. So I still keep within that sort of like monitoring of my time and the data that goes along with that. But at the end of the day, I'm not sitting there watching, well, how much is this going to cost for, in terms of the profit I can make? It's more about, well, what is the cost going to be to the client? And are they happy to spend that sort of thing?
1: Feeling inspired but unsure how to translate that inspiration into change in your firm. Or maybe you have ideas to shake up your business, but you're having a hard time implementing them. Well, I can help. After 10 years leading law firm development and change, I'm now helping others to do the same. My coaching programs are designed to help you redesign your business to create a simple but significant and sustainable business that will skyrocket your success. Let me help you do law differently. Visit lucydickens.com.au forward slash coach to find out more. Tell me about the meaning then behind the business name 23 Legal.
0: Ah, Sure thing. In the very early stages of planning, I did that thing that all lawyers do and thought I'd call my firm after my name and then I went to sleep. And your brain just tends to work when you're sleeping. And I woke up at 1am in the morning and thought, no, what really happens with what I do is... Everyone comes to me with a problem. No one comes to me with a clean slate. So there's step one is taken care of, I guess, for them. The problem has actually been identified. So I don't need the one. It's really, (laughs) then it comes to step two. And it's really about, that's really for the client to find the right lawyer for them. I know I'm not the right lawyer for everyone. You need to work well with my personality. You need to work well with how I like to work. But I'm also not necessarily an expert in every area of law. I don't do employment law. I don't do building construction. I don't do any commercial work. So it's about finding the right lawyer and if I'm not the right lawyer for the client for whatever reason, I'll help that client find the right lawyer for them. And then step three is the collaboration point. It's really that the client needs to give me the resources after we've had those discussions to do the work for them in the right way but they also need to then collaborate with me, dedicate their own time to help resolve the dispute because if they're just sitting on the on the sort of sidelines they may never be happy with the result, whereas if they're actively involved yeah. in achieving that result, A, they get a sense of achievement at the end of the day, whether that's a settlement or a trial win or that sort of result, but they also then understand the amount of work that goes into it and why it sort of is progressing the way it is.
1: Well, you describe yourself as a self-professed tech geek, so I feel like we should probably talk about technology a little bit at least. Tell me, what does technology look like at Two Three Legal? <sighs>
0: One of the things when I was setting up, I sort of started analysing the world around me and realised that I hate paper. Paper is (laughs) expensive and costly for so many reasons, not only just the environment, but then also the cost of storing it, the cost of producing it, the fact that your office then just looks like an absolute shambles Mm because it's everywhere. So I thought, well, how best to get rid of paper? And and in doing that, I thought, well, the only way to do that is invest in technology, both from the infrastructure point, so mobile phone, tablet, laptop, multiple screens, mm-hmm. but then also going down the route, well, what software, what plugins, what things can I do, but in a cost-effective way. So um, the... Cloud servers and a lot of the apps you can get these days are relatively inexpensive, but they're powerful, as you know, and as powerful as some of those large server setups that some of the top tier firms are running themselves. Mm. So I guess around that sort of tech side of things, but then it's also from my own personal thing. I I quite like voice assistance and I quite like the dictation side of things. So using um, dictation software, using sort of um, voice assistance where I can, Um, but then just, you know, in general, I just quite like technology and it's a bit of fun to play with.
1: What are some of your favourite software applications or online applications that you use in your firm?
0: I mean, my practice management stuff. So I use ActionStep and NetDocs, which just yeah. essentially run my life. Zero is great for accounting. And then it's really the Microsoft suite itself has just become so powerful in the last few years that I don't really need to deviate far from that to get what I need out of it. So I use OneNote for notes and then obviously Word and Excel to do all those sorts of things. But I've got some, I'm getting some really interesting tools in at the moment. I've got an email and we just had a bit of a chat about uh, cybersecurity and emails. Um, and it's an email encryption tool that sits in your Outlook as an add-in. But every time a client sends you an email, it'll actually scan it to make sure that there's no virus links to make uh-huh. sure it's come from the person who actually who actually sort of sent it. So it'll, it'll check those sorts of things. But then also going out I can two-factor authenticate emails so that clients then need to get a text message code to be able to access the email. So if I'm sending highly confidential advices or requests for money in trust accounts, because we've had those sorts of issues recently in Queensland and across Australia where money's gone missing, those sorts of added level of protection, as well as confirming things over the phone sort of allows that. And then it's things simple things like we're recording this on Zoom at the moment. So Mm. Zoom is a great sort of Function. So I, I worked for a month in Chicago early last year and it was great because I could video chat with clients but then also get all my work done remotely.
1: It's interesting how, when a lot of people start their journey into tech, they jump to these fancy applications that have been designed for law firms. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with them, we've designed our own practice management software. But it is really quite interesting how just how much you can do with these really basic Microsoft Suite. I mean, it does a hell of a lot. Zoom, like how convenient it makes life. Um, often we, we expect these completely high-tech innovations, but really we can do quite a lot with the basic stuff that we're all using every day.
0: And I actually think that's a better way to do it. We have this great world of legal tech which is evolving, but we need to start viewing it not as in its own entity of legal tech. We need just to start viewing technology generally. I mean, the expenditure in general technology, as opposed to legal tech, is astronomically different. And a one-stop solution where everything is in one place is not going to necessarily be the most dynamic or the easiest thing to use long term. So things like a cloud server, you don't necessarily need to use a legal-based cloud server as long as it can securely store your documents and it actually works better than what your hole-in-one practice management software might, it might be a better decision to go down that route. So I think if we start viewing technology generally and working out, well, as long as it is secure and safe to use, how can that make us more efficient? So whether that is, you know, time recording software, um, you know, some of the technology coming, the artificial intelligence. I mean, I know Watson in the in the US is, is sort of legal based, but it. AI technology, they're not going to design it just for law. Oh, AI itself course. is going to just, it's going to be an outside application that we can then use that within law. So I think... Not just confining yourself to the world of legal tech and looking outside the technology realm and going, well, what else is out there in the market? And that's where you find some great things like Zoom, like uh, Power BI through Microsoft. Zero, I guess, is a great accounting software, but it's not designed for lawyers, but it does pretty much everything you need aside from your trust accounting sort of thing. So there's all those sort of great technology platforms out there that aren't legal specific. And the other part is they get a lot more funding so they can then invest heavily in cyber security, heavily in keeping it up to date and keeping it modern. And then the ease of use is so much, I find them a lot less clunky than a lot of legal software can be because it's such a confined market. Absolutely.
1: The other thing I wanted to pick up on from what you just said about technology is the cyber security bit. And you mentioned we were having a conversation before we hit record about that and about email security. So I'm interested, firstly, to hear the name of the email encryption software that you're trying out, because I'm sure if I'm interested, other people will be too.
0: Uh, It's it's a company in the US called Trustify, so T-R-U-S-T-I-F-Y, I think it is. I can send you a link so you can put that in the description if you want. Yeah, but, I will. Um, Essentially, it's a monthly subscription sort of thing. It sits in your sort of Outlook, but then it allows sort of some analysis of emails. It also can do, it can actually, it's relatively powerful, can do, so instead of hitting, you know, in Outlook, read receipt. It'll actually do all that work for you so it can postmark your email, show you what time it was sent, what time it was read. uh, can do sort of basic encryption, two-factor authenticated encryption. But even great things, if you start typing a credit card number into your email, you can set it up so that as soon as that happens, it will basically prevent you from sending that email until you've encrypted it. Mm. So it's got these sort of other functions which prevent that user error of sending really sensitive data or information out to the world. Okay. Um, so that's probably, I guess, and it's relatively inexpensive. I can't remember what I pay, but it, it's one of those sort of less than $10 a month sort of encryption yeah. sort of things that I use. And, you know, it's still in, I'm still trialling it out, but it sort of seems to work when, when I sort of have been sending it to clients sort of thing. They sort of seem to understand and embrace it. It's just, yeah. I guess, about having those discussions up front about why it's not just a standard email and why we're sort of going down that route.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. This is cybersecurity is one of those things that you don't think will ever, you know, nothing will ever happen to me. That kind of stuff happens to somebody else. The other thing that you mentioned to me earlier on was that you think that we will see the death of email during our careers. So I'm interested to hear what you say about that.
0: And it may not be a complete death, but for anything that we're doing in law firms, I can see a very near future where the risk of using email is too high for law firms. The fact that they're getting hacked regularly now, we've seen the PEXA issue where email addresses and passwords were changed through a simple reset button. The two-factor authentication issues where they send codes to emails, the risk of using email to send bank account details, but then when we get to the more legal privilege sides of things, you know, sending advices, sending general communications, I can see a world where, and I don't think it's that far away, and I, there are apps out there that currently do this, where essentially we host a secure portal that clients log into, two-factor authenticated through either their mobile or one of, like a LastPass or Google Authenticator app which then allows us to securely communicate with them. Now, obviously, we can't prevent a client from downloading those documents unless we lock that off, but at least we're getting to a stage where all communication will go through our own secure portals, whether that's hosted on the cloud or hosted on our local server. I mean, look, no system is infallible. You will have issues where they will get hacked themselves, but where each individual file is encrypted, it prevents viruses from spreading, it prevents ransomware, it prevents a whole range of different issues that crop up just from, you know, someone clicking on a link in a random email. It also prevents the phishing attacks where they mask their email address to look like a Microsoft email or something like that, because you're not having emails with those companies necessarily, or those emails are sort of separated from where your client sits. The other benefit of that is, is, particularly if it's cloud-based, if you do have a cyber breach where a ransomware attack, for example, and you can't access your computer, you could literally walk down to JB Hi-Fi, buy a laptop, log into your cloud server, and everything's sitting there. It's encrypted. It's protected. It's that safe. So I think there is going to be a push either from our insurers or from lawyers generally to work out a way to get around or at least mitigate the risks of this cybersecurity world. And I, I can just see a, a stage just by how easy and convenient email is moving to a portalized system where a client might receive a text message or, an, or they might even still receive an email saying, you've got something secure in your portal, log on, but it won't have a link to log on. It will just sort of allow them to jump into the portal sort of mm-hmm. thing. That'll take a bit of getting used to from both the lawyer side and the client side, but it will also allow you to build in features like a budget tracker or a client will be able to see what work's being completed either in real time or shortly thereafter. They can access their matter a lot easier rather than them trying to store it all in their own email, which is as your clients found out, inherently unsecure and unreliable, but then also allows you to then control the flow of information a lot smoother. So I think, yeah, I think we're definitely sort of heading down that route at some stage um, where I can see it happening.
1: It feels like a big, scary world of unknown to me because I don't know a whole lot about cybersecurity. That's someone else's domain in the firm and there's there's a hell of a lot to it, isn't it? Then it just gets more and more intelligent every week
0: by the sounds of it. Exactly. And I mean, the majority of firms in Australia are small law firms. So not many have a large budget for cybersecurity. I don't have a large budget for cybersecurity, but there's a lot of sort of, I like guess, simple, cheap, effective steps like using a password manager, using a VPN, making sure you're like not opening unsecure links in emails, that confirming Instructions orally. There's a whole bunch of basic yeah, steps some there. basic
1: things. Again, it comes law back f- to the basics, the stuff we've all got and are doing anyway, or should be doing anyway. Exactly,
0: and then it's about education and education and, and having good policies in place within a law firm, like saying, "Well, look, if this happens, what do we do next?" And making sure everyone, because cyber security, and I know you just said it's you know the, someone else's domain, but the reality is everyone in the firm, from <laughs> from the front desk receptionist all the yeah. way through to the most senior partner. You're all equally as at risk, and in some cases, the most senior partner may be the most risk because they're not necessarily the most tech savvy. So, making sure that everyone understands that cybersecurity is a very serious thing, and then also taking steps to mitigate that. So, that might be even things like educating lawyers that when you're out of court, making sure you're not reading privileged materials, you know, in, in view public. of other people. Mm. Exactly, I you know. And I've been sitting on trains before, and just seen people like seen other lawyers just going through and writing letters of advice to clients. And they're sitting there going, "Well, if I can see it, mm-hmm. who else can yeah. see it?" Yeah. And. You know, you don't know who's, who is is the lawyer from the other side on the train with you and they're seeing the advice. You just sort of don't know what's out there. And there's a whole range of those sort of steps you can take just to mitigate that risk and make it sort of a little bit smaller target. You can never be a zero target, but the smaller target you are, um, the, I guess the harder it is for someone to find you.
1: This is why we're all required to do ethics points on CPD so that we can do the (laughs) cybersecurity courses and that can remind us of those really important things like not reading your documents out in public. What's some advice that you would give to somebody who wants to do law differently?
0: I think you have to sort of throw out the old way and sort of start building from scratch and work out, well, what does it look like for me? Because what it looks like for me is not going to be the same as what it looks like for someone else. You need to work out what you love about the law and what you hate and everything you hate about the Lord that's what you change because the stuff you love you've got to want to do that every single day, but the stuff you really dislike, and for me, that was the dollar signs and the paper and the lack of sort of flexibility in technology so once you work out what you're not enjoying and what you're not wanting to get out of bed every single day for the next you know i'm thirty five so I've got at least you know twenty to five to thirty years of this left, if not longer. If I don't get out of bed every day going, I want to do these things, well, then that's what you need to change. And that can be as simple as, you know, putting a mental health plan in place because you go to work every day and you're just not happy. But then it can be as complex as, well, let's see if we can go to a completely digitized firm where I sit on a beach in Bermuda and just write advices to clients sort of thing. So there's a whole spectrum of the ability to deliver law in a different way, but you always need to center it around, well, what do I love? And if you can center it around that love of the law, love of that aspect of the law and change everything else around it, that's, I guess, how you can do it differently and then also be successful at it.
1: I love that that's your advice and that's your answer and that you're living proof of somebody who's gone out and set up their firm in that way. I offer coaching services to lawyers and the thing I always start with is what do you want your life to look like? What's the work you enjoy and who do you like helping? And a lot of the time I get kind of looks like, oh, well, it's not that easy. You know, I have to do the work that comes through the door and you can't say no to work like you've said before, which I get to some extent. But the more you, you answer to that, the less you get to answer to the stuff that you love. And so to hear you say, this was my starting point and here I am living it. That's pretty good. That's inspirational stuff.
0: And I guess the other aspect of that is as well, it's not a one-stop shop because you need to constantly be re-evaluating it. I mean, law in general, I mean, we looked at it from day one through to now. It's looked relatively similar. We've had a few advances, you know, but it's still you do the work in this sort of direct matter. You need to constantly reevaluate why you're doing it and what you're doing it, and you you fall into old habits. And I had that issue where I fell into my old habits, and I then had to pull myself back mm-hmm. out of that ditch again, going, "Hang on a sec, you're you're not doing this <laughs> the way you wanted to do it, and it's not working, because of that." And so, constantly reevaluating it it comes down to the same thing as no matter what you do in life, you got to put the work in, you know, you don't get anything for free in this world. And if you put in the hours and you put in the work, as long as you're happy to do that, and it's working for you, then that's how you sort of make that happiness and make that success.
1: Sounds like a perfect place to finish. Thank you so much for joining me and for sharing all of your wonderful advice. Thanks very much that's all from doing law differently today thank you so much for listening to the podcast if you enjoyed the show i would love to ask two favors from you first please tell your friends if you know of someone who you think might enjoy listening to the podcast or might learn something from one of my guests i'd love it if you could share the episode with them and the other thing i would love to ask is if you're listening on apple podcasts please leave me a rating and review i love hearing what people think about the show and it really helps other people to find out about the podcast as well see you next time